brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio on time, on target. This is my last week of shows, as crazy as it is, man. This is it. Uh, this show is brought to you by Airdrop. Airdrop is a new section on Crate Club where you can find essential gear and killer apparel that you can buy separately from our monthly and quarterly club subscriptions. There's some great stuff on there that's heavily discounted, but a lot of these items sell out quick. So you really got to act now. For example, we've got a few more Cry Precision Ballistic Soft Armor inserts and Crate Club Fishing Spears. When I last checked, we had all those up. Um, but other items like that Gerber Multi-Tool, those are gone. It's up on its own section on CrateClub.us, or you can go to store.crateclub.us to check it all out. That's store.crateclub.us. Tons of gear you're going to love on Airdrop. Excellent show uh, last week with David Richardson. Really enjoyed that interview. Check it out if you haven't already. We have uh, Remy Adelik coming on this show, uh, retired Navy SEAL. But I guess the big thing that we got to get into that's going on uh, that really broke on Saturday from the New York Times was this article that uh, titled Trump may be preparing pardons for servicemen accused of war crimes. And as you told me, Jack, Dave Phillips, the author we've had on the show before, you reminded me. Um, and I originally saw this tweeted out by a guy, I believe, who interviewed you on Fox and Friends, Pete Hegseth, yeah. right? Yep. And the way he described it is that Trump is a true warfighter's president. Yeah, I talked to Pete after uh, after I was on Fox and Friends, actually, and he was, like, trying to tell me about that. He was like, what do, you, what do you think about Eddie Gallagher? And I was like, well, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. It doesn't really look good when, you know, how, however many, what, five or seven of your teammates come out and uh, accuse you of war crimes. But, I mean, you know, we have to let the facts come out. And uh, he was trying to tell me he had seen, you know, the defense had shown him some internal documents that led him to believe that these witnesses wanted to withdraw their statements. And, but I, I don't know, I haven't seen that document. Um, but he, he was definitely in, uh, in Gallagher's camp. And, uh, I think the, the thing with, you know, everyone knows that Trump watches Fox news and these corporations, uh, that are trying to appeal to the president. Like recently it was the airlines, like they know they can buy ad space, on Fox and Friends, and it's like almost a sure thing that the president's going to see it. Um, so if you want to get his ear, that's the way to do it. So pretty interesting. Yeah. So um, you know, and and the defense uh, people who defend uh, Eddie Gallagher have become you know pretty much regulars on Fox and Friends. So certainly trying to influence the president's decision making. And here, you know, we have this article uh, which appears to show that just that has happened. That um, Trump has ordered the paperwork to be drafted to pardon. Uh, it is believed Chief Eddie Gallagher. And I think I saw reading, you know, the, through the article, Matt Goldstein mentioned as yes. well. Uh, and also um, one of the Blackwater guys 
who was convicted for that shooting, uh, 2007 shooting, as they went through the traffic circle. And the Marine Corps snipers, you remember that whole thing where they, uh, the video came out of them pissing on the Taliban bodies. Um, and there might be one other person involved in here. but So they're supposedly drawing up all this pardoning, uh, pardon files to uh, do this. And it sounds like Trump wants to do it on Memorial Day, which is... And by the way, you called it on this show. You said this is something that Trump was going to do. Um, I think you said closer to the election. Yeah, that was my thoughts that he would do it right during the during the 2020 ele- re-election, his re-election campaign um, for the maximum amount of publicity. I mean, I, there's a couple of different things I could say about this. I mean, first off, to pardon a bunch of people who are accused of war crimes on Memorial Day is just kind of fucking gross. I mean, I don't, I don't know even know what to say to that. There's a certain amount of tone deafness. <laughs> <laughs> there to say the least. Um, but beyond that, um, like we were talking about Michael Bahena before we started recording. Yeah. And yes, uh, President Trump pardoned him. I think that's a very different situation, though. Um, I be- agree. Because Bahena was convicted. He went to his he had his trial. He was convicted. Served, served slightly served, under five years. Served 15 year sentence. Served prison time. Got paroled out. Um, when he got paroled out, we had him on this podcast to interview him. Uh and then years later, uh, President Trump pardons Bahena. And the facts were all out. We know what the fa- happened. The facts were all out. And Bahena, who, who it should be said, he maintains his innocence to this day. But Bahena served his debt to society. He was convicted. He served his time. He manned up to that. Uh, and now it's time for him to get back on with his life and, sure. and to try to reintegrate into society. Um, with Eddie Gallagher the facts have not had the opportunity to come out yet in a court of law. What I have witnessed is the defense has tried very, very hard to try this case in a court of public passion. They have tried to get everyone all spun up about this, make it into uh, something that's very emotional, um, which I have no doubt it is emotional for the family and for the accused, but they have tried to rile up the entire American public and get them on their side. I, Courts have to be impartial. Justice has to be impartial. It, it can't take place um, just because we have passionate convictions, because there's something we want to believe. We have to go with what the facts are. And, and, and this president does like to take, um, he, he likes to get involved in cases that, that are popular amongst that are gonna, the public. Well, that's, a, that's another part of this. So, I mean, just to finish off what I was saying is that In my opinion, this needs to go to court martial so that the facts can come out. And look, if the facts show that these guys, that these, these, what, five or six or seven SEALs accusing uh, Chief Gallagher of war crimes, if it comes out in a court of law that they fabricated this stuff, that they were liars, that they perjured themselves, well, that's reprehensible. And then those guys should probably be facing charges at at that point. But if that's where the chips fall, I mean, let the chips fall where they may. And then we know. Then we will know. Seems we said this before we record. It seems so calculated. And every Navy SEAL that we've had on the show, I have asked their opinion. It's overwhelmingly overwhelming support for Gallagher. I mean, ask Kristen Beck on the show, Rob O'Neill. Uh, you were here when we talked to Jake's wig. We're definitely going to ask Remy. 
Uh, but I, I, but I've got to be honest. I am more in your camp of let the guy have a fair trial and then figure things out from there. And I don't, I don't know what's controversial about that statement. It is, and, it is a controversial statement, yeah, isn't and it? And when we had Kristen Beck on this, you know, I let Kristen give or take. But what Kristen said just didn't add up to me. Where they said, well, this guy was really harsh on his men. He was not well liked by them, so they kind of uh, got together and concocted this the, these ideas of war crimes. A conspiracy. That, that, that yeah. doesn't add up to me, personally. That, I mean, that seven soldiers, seven SEALs, cooked up a conspiracy and they invented war crimes out of whole cloth um, because their boss was a dick. That's a little difficult to believe. Um, just based on my own personal experience, I've worked for some dicks uh, in the Army, and uh, the, the notion that we would sit down and, and dream that kind of stuff up and then perjure ourselves and sign sworn statements uh, to things that we know aren't true. That, that's difficult to believe. Um, there were times in, in special forces and in ranger battalion where you had a boss who was incompetent. And what would happen is that the NCOs, the sergeants, would go to the sergeant major together. And they would say, look, he goes or we go. And that didn't happen often, but those little coup attempts, they do happen. So there are a number of different ways you could go about getting a, a bad leader removed that don't involve all of this craziness we've seen play out in the public sphere. Um, and it's odd that our, the default position is support this warfighter, support Chief Gallagher, but don't support the other six or seven SEALs. Like we're, we, don't, we don't support them. Like, is our belief that those six or seven guys are a bunch of libtards, that they're a bunch of Hillary supporters, um, that these SEALs are closeted communists um, who love Obama and want to destroy the military? Like, do we really believe that? And I'm, I'm asking a sort of a rhetorical question. I'm asking you to ask yourself, do you believe that? Um, and... The, the facts of this case, I don't know. I don't know if, if Gallagher is innocent or guilty, but when I look at what we do know, there are certain claims being made that I find very difficult to believe. And I imagine wherever you fall, wherever what your beliefs are in this case, you would find some of these claims difficult to believe. And again, that's why this needs to go to trial so that we can find out what the fuck really happened here and that there can be justice. And, and if, if Gallagher is innocent, then he will be exonerated. Yeah, exactly. Why, why is there this fear of going to trial? If he's completely innocent, that will all come out. Yeah. And then the other, the flip side to this is, you know, president Trump playing this up for his own personal publicity, which again is just kind of gross to me. It's like he, he's, doing this to try to make himself look good. And I, I mean, I don't believe for a moment that he gives a shit about our troops or that he cares about war crimes alleged or otherwise, um, that he's just going to do this on Memorial day just to, you know, put a feather in his hat. It's like, come on, man, really? You, you know, what worries me as well. And you, you would probably have a better take on this, but I would just think the president wholesale pardoning, it, it seems like almost anyone accused of a war crime in the military, like he's not looking at these as individual cases. He went from Behenna to this, to Matt Goldstein, to just all at once. I, I would think, wouldn't it be crazy to think that won't be used as some sort of terrorist recruitment tool that, you know, no matter what the U.S. You can military get away does, with murder. he'll get away with it, yeah. Yeah, you can get away with murder. And, hey, you, you, you know, you commit murder on the battlefield, you execute civilians. Hey, fuck it, you come home, you 
spin up an Instagram account, a Twitter account, you wave the American flag and you go free. All right. Is that, is that how it works now? And you, you alluded to it before, which you were saying that, you know, just making the point that this guy should have a fair, impartial trial is now a controversial statement. And it says something about us as a country. It says something about every single one of us when we look in the mirror that we now live in a country where it is controversial to say war crimes are bad, to say that executing civilians is bad. To say that if you, uh, you know, if you murder a family, if you rape a teenage girl in Iraq, that that's bad and that, that that's unacceptable, unprofessional behavior from our soldiers, that that's now a controversial statement. And, and I hear it all the time. People hate me and, and criticize me. And I mean, I can take it, but it, it, what is very disturbing to me is that that is where our values are at as a country, that we're just okay with that. And as you mentioned, there's so many people, we trained these guys to kill. What do you expect? Like, well, hold on a second now. We never trained these guys to murder civilians. <laughs> like, that's, not, that was, that's not a course in the military. Um, we, ex- we expect our soldiers to be disciplined. And I think we all understand that we put these guys in very difficult positions. Um, you have to make difficult decisions under combat stress and combat conditions. That shit gets confusing out there. You're in a firefight in the middle of the night. You don't know who the fuck is where. You don't know what's going on. And, you know, I wrote about it in my book. I know better than most people how fucking confusing it gets out there and that you do something, you take an action that you think is ethical and moral and right. And then it turns out that you did something really wrong. And I mean, I've been there. I know a lot of other guys have been there. I know guys who have um, explosively breached doors and killed kids on the other side. And but it's not a war crime. They, they, they were trying to do the right thing, and there was a kid there, and that's fucking tragic, and that's horrible. But it's not murder. So there's a big difference. And I, I just think it's, it's shocking to me how many Americans, including my fellow veterans, who will come out there and try to legitimize war crimes. And that's really disturbing to me. And it makes, it makes me question. It's the kind of thing that will make you question, do you really want to continue supporting the military if this is where we're at, if this is who we are now? Well, although I said that the, the Navy SEALs we've had on the show have overwhelmingly supported uh, Eddie Gallagher, you know, without question, one guy who did, who did not you know, go with the grain on that. And I saw you uh, put this article up was representative Dan Crenshaw is echoing what you're saying. Let this go to trial first. Yeah. Crenshaw made a, a statement today, uh, just saying that the facts need to come out in, in the court martial. And after that, a pardon can be considered, right. If it's appropriate or not. So I, I agree with Dan. I think he's right. Um, and, and, to, to be honest, he's more powerful than any of the other seals we've had on the show and that he is a voice in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm glad he came out and said that. Um, that was great. And I would think people will lend some legitimacy to what he's saying and that he's been there. He's done that. And, and he's echoing your point of view. I mean, I, I respect his point of view. I, I mean, but honestly, I think this is so polarized and people are so passionate and so emotional about this. I think that people will just come, those types of people, they'll just come out and fuck Dan Crenshaw, you know, fuck him. He's a libtard. Yeah, he's a, he, he's a liberal. Get him. Raw. It's like, come on, dude. Um, I mean, and, and the guy supports the president. He does. I'd say a good 90% he, of things. He's, he, he is a pretty um, ardent Trump supporter. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but I mean, for me, I, I look at this and it's like, man, if this is who we are now, this is what we support. Then all we are is ISIS with an American flag on our shoulder. Like pretty is, controversial statement. Is, is that what we're becoming? Is that who we are? And, and if that's the case, why the fuck are we even fighting in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and a dozen other places if we're just going to replace one group of thugs with another? I mean, what, uh, why are we even pretending this is about freedom? <laughs> like, let's just dispense with that pretense entirely and just, hey, it's about slaughter. Just killing for the sake of killing. That's what it is. And that's who we are now. Yeah, this will be interesting if, if this happens on Memorial Day. And like I said, I, I do think one of the things people have a problem with is he's, it wouldn't just be a pardon of one guy. It's a pardon of several guys, which makes me think that these are not being looked at as individual cases, which is how everything should be looked at. Everything should be looked at as individual. What circumstances did this yeah. happen under? Uh, well, because, the, I mean, it's just so crazy to me to not believe that there are members of the military who, who are war criminals or criminals of any type. You take any group of people in America as big as the military, and you're going to find some people who have, you know, terrible intentions and, and poor backgrounds. Well, that's the, the point they tried to make in this in this article was that um, presidential pardons usually take like months to review. And it sounds like they're throwing all these together in about a week. It's, it's just so weird to me how it all gets thrown, as you said, under the heading of support the troops, because, you know, we, we know for a fact that obviously I'm not saying the, this guy represents the military, but I mean, Tim McVeigh honorably served. All right. There are obviously people in the military who do terrible things. Which troops do we support and why? Yeah. So we'll keep you updated as, as this keeps going. Uh, before we get to Remy and, you know, we'll get his take on this as well. I wanted to mention this, and you guys are going to ask me why are you bringing this up. But I, and this is this is in your world, Dennis, because you were you worked on the Taz Show. You know the wrestling world. This is in my world. Yes. Yeah. I, I, did you ever meet Ashley Massaro? I have not. No, but I know for a fact that Taz himself has worked side by side her closely. So he was very upset uh, on Twitter, and I'm sure personally as well with her passing over the weekend. So uh, it definitely hit close to home with him, and he gets very. When wrestlers die, which is very common because just the, the CTE and the steroids and whatnot, like it hits home. And especially for a girl to do it, it's it hits even harder. Yeah. So I saw this happen last week. Fellow Long Islander uh, who I had some mutual friends with, actually. I never met her, but Ashley Massaro died. Also a uh, radio DJ on the Shark, local Long Island station. And that's actually how they found out that she died was she didn't show up for her radio shift. Uh, and they, they found her dead. And I, I don't know if it's confirmed as a suicide. I know that, you know, they're it's saying not officially, a, but it, yeah. it heavily leans that way. They're saying she had a history with depression. Um, the reason I bring this up, because you're probably wondering what, where, what does this have to do with the military, is I don't know when this actually came out, but it's going around on Twitter. And I, I personally have not seen any military sites report on this, on this affidavit. And it could very likely have... I would think something to do with her depression and possible suicide. So I'm just going to read from the actual uh, testimony here for this lawsuit against the WWE, which she dropped. Um, But I mean, this sounds like this, I mean, this sounds like a pretty detailed story that she tells here. I, I I would say it sounds legitimate to me and uh, would make sense why she ended their life prematurely, possibly if that's the case at uh, 39 Anyway, I'm going to read from this right here. This is from the actual testimony. 
and I highlighted some of the most important parts of this. Uh, so it's a little bit long, but let me read it. Uh, while I was initially thrilled to have this opportunity, which is about going um, overseas with WWE for the mil- uh, It was like a USO tour kind exactly. of thing. Yeah, I began experiencing issues from the outset. At the beginning of the trip, I received harsh treatment from several men in Saudi Arabia, even while wearing a burqa. Maria Canellis, who I assume is someone else in the organization, did not receive this type of treatment, so I suspected that it was related to my fair skin and light eyes. This made me very uncomfortable, but I brushed it off and was still looking forward to the tour. Then, after we arrived in Kuwait, I began to suffer from from menstrual cramps. I had asked to rest in the Humvee, which was air-conditioned during a break, and the U.S. Army soldiers insisted I was suffering from dehydration, notified Gary, and insisted on taking me to a nearby military base in Kuwait. I was told at the base that I needed an IV for dehydration. I protested, but they insisted that I needed it, and it was very common due to the hot weather. When I arrived at the sick bay, an IV was placed in my arm almost immediately. After sitting with the IV in my arm for what I felt like was hours, Jimmy Hart came to check up on me and make sure I was okay. I told them I was fine, but that they wouldn't leave me because they said I had to wait to see a doctor. Jimmy said he and the rest of the group were going to get lunch and left. Another couple of hours went by, and then a man appeared in the sick bay dressed in an orange T-shirt and cargo shorts. I had heard others comment that it was his birthday. He represented himself as a U.S. Army doctor, but I observed that all the other doctors at the facility had been wearing scrubs, so I... I do not know whether this was true. He was with a woman who was dressed in full military fatigues. While I was in the sick bay, he approached me and almost immediately administered an IV of an unknown substance in my other arm. Almost immediately after, the alleged doctor and the woman in fatigues moved me into a room that did not appear to be a treatment room and placed me onto a table. The woman guarded the door while the man proceeded to inject me with a drug that caused me to be unable to move my body or to scream. The man then proceeded to violently rape and sodomize me. I was completely helpless to defend myself against this attack, and the drug he injected rendered me temporarily paralyzed. Despite being unable to control my movements, I remained fully conscious for every second of the attack. I felt excruciating pain as a result of this man penetrating me by force and against my will in a violent and aggressive manner while I was completely defenseless. Each second that went by was excruciating, and I've never felt more helpless or been more terrified in my entire life. The experience was a living nightmare. I don't know exactly how long this went on for, but it felt like an eternity. The suffering I endured far surpassed all the injuries I had ever suffered in the ring put together. I was experiencing not only severe physical pain, but severe emotional and psychological trauma. I've always considered myself to be a fighter and a survivor, so I can't even find the words to describe what it felt like to be thrown on a table and stripped and then brutalized in the worst possible way that one human being is capable of brutalizing another, all all while being unable to move or speak. In addition to the pain and terror, I felt almost dehumanized and was extremely disturbed by the feeling that I was I somehow given this man as some type of sick birthday present. And it almost made me sick that the female soldier willingly guarded the door for him while he raped me without blinking an eye. Finally, Gary returned and was banging on the door. The man and woman yelled one minute and threw a dirty quilt on me as I was lying naked on the table. And when Gary entered the room, he attempted to ask them what was going on, but they immediately stormed out. At the time, my body was still limp and my speech impaired, so Gary wrapped me in the quilt and carried me out to the Humvee outside and took me back to my hotel room and then put me in my bed as I needed to sleep. Gary said to call when I woke up and that, and that he or one of the others we were traveling with would come back to get me. Alone in the hotel room uh, without a burqa and, and uh, 
Riyadh for the night. Am I pronouncing that Riyadh, right? yeah. Riyadh for the night. So I called a friend who is a travel agent who arranged for me to meet an airline, ho- uh, airline employee who by some miracle got me onto a flight. Thankfully, I was able to return home, but I was still incredibly upset at the fact that I had been abandoned in a dangerous situation by my colleagues who knew that I had just, uh, who knew what I had just endured and thought it was inappropriate that even the WWE office, while not aware of the rape yet, would think it was a good plan for the rest of the group to leave me alone there overnight. As I returned to the U.S., Dr. Rio set, set a meeting with me and questioned me about the incident. I have no idea how he knew anything that happened. I suspect that either something showed up in my drug test results, one of the other individuals on the tour reported it to him, or he could just sense from my demeanor that something was wrong. Regardless, he told me that I needed to tell him what had happened. I'd finally agreed on the condition that he not disclose the information to anyone else and told him what had occurred. Dr. Rios then informed Vince, obviously Vince McMahon, who informed Kevin Dunn, John Laurinaitis, I assume these are heads of the WWE, and several other company executives or lawyers that I had never even met but were all present at a meeting that I was called into shortly after. Vince led the meeting with these men and asked me to recount what happened in Kuwait. Then he said it was not in the best interest of the WWE for me to make the information about my attack public. I was still completely traumatized at that point, and I just agreed. It was clear that there had been a conversation that they had reached a decision on their own prior to consulting with me, as this was not a debate, but rather Vince instructing me to keep this confidential. Vince did at least apologize for what I went through, but then stressed that if I disclosed this incident, it would ruin the relationship between the WWE and the U.S. military. He told me not to let one bad experience ruin the work that they were doing. His lack of sensitivity in referring to my ordeal as, quote, one bad experience left me speechless. Vince went on to say that I would not be required to travel to the Middle East ever again and that the WWE would institute a new policy where any time a female WWE performer went to the Middle East, she would have a female WWE escort with her 24-7 to ensure that this did not happen again. So that that right there is a really crazy story. I haven't seen any military outlets um, reporting on it, but it's something that should be reported on. So that guy who raped her. You think that was his first time raping a woman? That I do not know. I mean, it seems pretty orchestrated with the IV and everything else. Think, think it's maybe his fifth, tenth? He had a system down. And I, it is crazy I, reading about the, the woman just standing there guarding the door. That was pretty surprising. It's a system, and it was planned, and there were at least two people who knew about it. There's probably more. There's probably, if I were to guess, based on just the, the weird stuff i found out covering military sexual assault cases i bet you there's a ring i bet i bet there was five six seven guys involved and i bet they did that to dozens of women and if you went investigating it i bet some of that would shake out and there's probably female soldiers walking around right now who were raped and they have you know they're they're just keeping it to themselves or they were blacked out because they were uh so heavily medicated and they have no idea who, who did what to them case is fucking crazy. And, uh, and you know what the WWE did to this, this woman traumatized her a second time because they didn't support her and they threw her under the bus, a lot of stuff. And this is, I mean, this is what I'm trying to say, man, is a lot of shit has been covered up in this war a lot. And, and by the way, you know, as unfortunate as it is, I could see why the WWE said, don't report this. This will make the WWE's relationship with the military look bad because if they come become public with this, 
the narrative could become, why are you supporting this woman's word over a U.S. military? Yeah, but here's the thing. Here's Here's the thing. Why is it that we are putting the rapist in a higher stature than this woman who was raped? And we do this shit over and over and over again is that the victim needs to shut the fuck up because, oh, you're going to tarnish the reputation of the army or whatever. And instead, we're going to support the criminal and, you know, say whatever, whatever bullshit excuse. And I mean, the flag waving and the patriotism, it, that stuff comes out every time. It's like the one I, I that story I worked on about the uh, guy in the 101st Airborne Division and the he was abusing male soldiers in in, uh, yeah. in his platoon. And when those soldiers would go to their chain of command, the fucking colonel and the sergeant major would they sat they sat the one guy I talked to down. One of the many guys I talked to, they sat him down and they said, why would you want to tarnish the reputation of the band of brothers? Like, what can we do for you to make this all go away? It's crazy. It's crazy. And it happens over and over and over again. And the, my, my issue is with also with all these people out there who just want to wave the flag and say, support the warfighter. So I know what's happening here is not okay. It's not okay. We have 22 soldiers a day killing themselves. At least that's the one statistic that gets put out there yeah. over and over again. 22 soldiers a day. And we all act like it's uh, this horrible thing. Um, we all want to talk about how sad it is. Something's got to be done. Has anyone ever stopped for just a moment to ask themselves why 22 soldiers are killing themselves every day? How come we never ask why? Is it because they were raped? in a combat zone? Is it because they saw a teammate murder civilians and it disturbed them? I mean, there are all sorts of different reasons sure. why, why they, why they came home so traumatized and maybe it has nothing to do with um, something criminal, right? And, you know, for sure combat can mess with somebody's head, normal combat with the enemy. You see a friend cut in half by an IED. I mean, there are very traumatic things that happen to soldiers, but I feel like, we, we just want to talk about the 22 a day as if it's happening in a vacuum, as if there isn't a cause and effect, like as if th- it isn't happening for a reason. And we don't ask the question why, because deep down, we don't want to know. That's probably the worst part of all. Well said. Um, and I hope more people report on this because it's very unfortunate to hear about this death. And it wouldn't be crazy to think that this is in some way connected with it. So this story should come out. Of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. All right. Well, with that, we do have a great interview lined up. We have Remy Adelik, who is an amazing story. His book is doing great things and uh, is out there right now. So let's get right over to him. On the phone with us right now, Remy Adeweke grew up in Africa, actually, uh, into a family of Nigerian royalty. When his father died, he relocated to the Bronx, got caught up in drug dealing and theft as a teenager. But then from there, joined the military, became a Navy SEAL went on to act in Transformers the last night, and you're also in another upcoming Michael Bay film, which is pretty cool. And the reason we're having you on beyond that great story is that you're uh, the author now of Transformed, and that title goes to uh, your, your part in Transformers, Transformed, a Navy SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx, defying all odds. It's an uh, honor to have you on, man. Hey, man, it's an honor to be on. Thanks for having me, brother. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Remy. I'd want to have you on for a long time since I, I read something about you, and I was just like, oh, man, this is like such a great story. 
Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, man, I've, I've heard about you guys for a while, so I was just been like, man, when's Softrep going to hit me up and do something? <laughs> man, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much for taking some time for us today, um, and, you know, we're happy to help you uh, promote the book. I mean, this is like a really, um, ju- not, not just a really unique story, but it's also, it is a story about perseverance. Um, so I, I guess... The, the first question I wanted to ask you was a little bit about, um, you know, your upbringing in, in Nigeria. And if yeah. you could explain a little bit about that context of your, your family background. And I, I get the sense that there was um, some political chicanery that took place that led to you having to leave the country. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I don't know how far back you guys are okay with me going back. but Go know, for it. It, it, kind of, it kind of starts with my grandfather. Um, so my grandfather, he was a he was a royal chief within the Yoruba tribe. There's there are three very prominent. There are many tribes in Nigeria, but there are three very prominent tribes: the Ibu, Hausa, and Yoruba. And my grandfather was a chief within the Yoruba tribe. And with that came his, you know, in, in European and Western culture, we refer to royalty as king, queen, prince, princess, Dutch. In Nigerian culture, it's your last name and chief. So our last name, Ade Lake, Ade actually means crown, and Lake means above. Ah, my full name is actually Ade Remy. Everybody just calls me Remy for short. And Ade Remy means the crown has appeased me. And so my grandfather, because of his status and as a chief within the Yoruba tribe, he was very wealthy, and he also had many wives. He had, like, nine wives. And my grandmother was one of the nine wives. And the very first son that was born to my grandfather was my father. So my father just naturally inherited that title. But when my, when my grandfather died when my dad was eight, and when he died, my father um, migrated down to the South. And when he got down to the South, there were Christian missionaries there. And not only did they teach the Bible, but they also taught science, math, you know, history, just Western, pretty much provided a Western education. So my dad, he was a savant. He soaked it all up, and he, he was just this intelligent guy, so much so that he ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to study engineering and architecture in London. And he went on oh, to get wow. his master's as well, and then he went on to start all of these businesses. Like was the West, in was your uh, father was then amongst the first, the first generation after um, colonialism to be brought yeah. to the West and go to college? Yeah, 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 because my dad was born in 1933. <laughs> so my dad was really, really, he was, he was a lot older. And so you're, you're, you're spot on. And um, he was one of the first. And, and so um, he ended up starting all of these businesses. He ended up being like the first black guy at the World Trade Center uh, in, in New York City. He ended up being on, on the World Counting, uh, Planning Council in Britain. And he did all of these things. But there was this burning desire within him to get back to Nigeria, to really establish Nigeria as a beacon for all of the world to look at. Uh, because he hated the stereotype that Africans were like these bush people who mm-hmm. ran around with spears and they were uneducated and they didn't have anything to give to the world. And so he wanted to go there to really, which was not true, but he really wanted to go change that narrative. And so he went back to Nigeria. He started all of these businesses. He started this engineering firm and he ended up built this, built this massive enterprise. So much so that he invested in this, in this land in Nigeria called Marico. Um, and he spent eight million pounds to buy the land in order to develop the city. Nigerian government stripped that from him. He went to court for ten years and, and battled them to get it back. They ended up giving him this lagoon, and he took this lagoon and he created a man-made island. He dredged it and created a man-made island. Around the same time, this is when I was born. I was born in 1982, and um, so I was essentially born into the wealth that my dad had already established. You know, I was born. You know, we had you know traveled the world, had nannies, cars, drivers, security, horses. We didn't live on a house. We lived on a compound. You know, we, I literally lived the dream. And um, in 1987, the Nigerian government, after the land was fully formed, 
they decided that this land doesn't belong to you anymore. You can't have this, which was very, you know, corrupt in a sense because they could have waited. They, they could have done that before he started dredging the lagoon that created an island, but they waited till it was fully formed. And once it was formed, they stripped it from him, and he had invested every penny in it. And my dad died a few days later in the midst of fighting them. So we went from rich to poor. That's, uh, I mean, it's unreal, but it's also, you know, very sad that, you know, your, it sounds like your father was really trying hard to build something and was undermined by, you know, the local corruption. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a big thing. Corruption is a, I'm working on a project that I'm writing now, uh, a TV show, and I really go deep into the corruption that plagues Nigeria. It's, it's, a, it's a really sad, sad, sad thing is that Nigeria is consistently ranked as, as one of the most corrupt nations in the world. And, yeah. and they're not poor. It's not a poor nation by any means. Um, they, or they provide oil. They have cocoa. I mean, oil is one of their the, the, the major exports. So they're a very, very rich country. It's just that the politicians at the top, they have no problem stealing. They have no problem taking money that's supposed to go to schools or roads and putting it in their own pocket. And then when we get to oil, that's a whole nother yeah. level of corruption. <laughs> <laughs> and, and after that, you touched down in the Bronx with your mom. Yeah. Yep. Was that like super cu- culture shock for you? No, it wasn't for me because, you know, my mom did a, did a fantastic job of masking the reality of what had happened to us. You know, the best, the best analogy I can use is my mom, just, I just envision my mom as this director, right? She's this director on this movie set and he's, she's creating this, this movie set. That, that that where if you look at it everything seems perfect but when you step <laughs> off the move off the movie set it's chaos and that's what my mom did as a matter of fact you know i tell people this all the time when my dad died i'll never forget it you know my mom placed my brother on her right side and me on her left side it was this red couch and she said you know in such a calm easy manner your heart my you know your dad's dead and he's not coming back and and there were no tears in her eyes she was so strong and she said it in such a common way that me and my brother looked at each other and we were like, okay. And we went back to playing because it was just the way my mom delivered it. And that's just a snapshot of, of the world that she created for us. Not because she was trying to hide the reality, but because she was trying to protect us. Yeah. But she knew that if we broke down, then she would break down more. And if <laughs> she broke down, we would break down more. So, you know, it wasn't until I was about eight years old that the reality set in, you know, because I begin to see things. You know, as a kid, you see things. You see the environment that you grow up in. You, you know, <laughs> to the you're like, is this normal? This is the way people are supposed to treat each other. You know, I, I was beat up. I was jumped. I had fights. And then, you know, I looked at our financial situation. There were times when my mom had to go to the, to the office, and I was right there with her, the rent office, to ask for extra time to pay the bills, you know, to pay the rent so that we could stay in the apartment. There were times when my mom didn't have enough food to feed herself. She had just enough food to feed my brother and I. My brother and I shared the same clothes. We shared sneakers, you know. Just, so as I, as I got older, you know, that's when I really began to realize, wow, like, this is my, this is my normal. Uh, this is what's going on. And I, I remember actually breaking down one day just crying because I was, I, I, my mom would tell me all of these stories of how we used to live. And, 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 you know, it was just like, man, I wanted that life. And I associated my father being alive with us having that life. And so, um, yeah, man, and as time went on, I just, that's when I decided, I think unconsciously, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to find a way to make that life for myself, to, to create this amazing life. And that's when I started out doing some nefarious stuff. And I started out <laughs> stealing from my mom. And then that progressed, you know, stealing from stores to get, you know, chips and little things here and there. And then, that progressed to getting jobs and stealing from jobs as much as I could. And then that progressed to selling drugs. And then that progressed to running high level scams. And, you know, by the time I was 19, I had this massive illegal enterprise where I was bringing in thousands, thousands of dollars a week. 
You know what I mean? And I had provided that life that I wanted my father to provide for me, but I provided it in a, in a very, very illegal way. <laughs> You're a, a young entrepreneur. <laughs> young entrepreneur, absolutely. Absolutely hustler. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, when, when did it get into your head? I mean, you're going to have this massive uh, career shift from criminal to Navy SEAL. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, as far as the whole Navy SEAL piece, back in 96, there was a film that came out called The Rock. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the first time I heard of Navy SEALs. You know, I was the first time I was like, growing up in the Bronx in the hood. You know what I'm saying? You don't, you don't know about special forces or SEALs. Or, you know what I mean? Like, you don't get recruiters to talk about yeah, that yeah. or, you know, special forces guys that come. You don't see billboards, so there's no education around it. Um, I get the question all the time, Remy, why is it that there are not many African-Americans and minorities in South? Is it because of racism? And my answer is I don't, I don't see this racism on the military's part. I, I, I see it as there's a lack of information. Yeah. There's a lack of education in the inner city. So when you don't have that information, you don't know about it. You can't pursue it. Right. And so for me, I didn't know anything about seals until, until I watched this movie, the rock. And I saw these guys coming out of the water and doing all this crazy stuff. And yeah, they got killed, but I was just like, just mesmerized. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> the Marines got them. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, fast forward to when, to, to, to when I was doing my thing, hustling in the streets, you know, all story short, I got involved in a deal with a drug dealer that went extremely, extremely bad. Like, it, it was a wake-up call for me. You know, I sold them some products that were supposed to last for a certain amount of time, only lasted for a fraction of that time, and he came knocking on my door. And uh, he was just like, if you don't give me what I'm, what I'm due, things are not going to go too well for you. And I knew his reputation. He was a killer. Like, he had bodies. That's what we say in the streets. He had bodies. He used to kill people. He, that's who he was. And so I knew what that meant. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I knew he was going to kill me. And, you know, you know, I didn't want to take that chance, and I didn't want to, you know, risk my mom's life. And so, you know, I, I made him the money that I needed to make him. And then after that, I decided, you know, I'm not going to do absolutely nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the game. I'm getting out of this hustling game. And so for six months, I did nothing. And then fast forward to June of 2002, you know, I finally, there's more to the story. It's all in my books. So I won't bore you guys with it. But I finally got, got to the point where I was just like, you know, what are you doing with your life? Like, what, what else do you have left? Like, you failed at everything. Like, what are you going to do? And the idea came in my mind, join the military. And, like, that was totally contrary to who I was because I hated the government. I hated the police. <laughs> I associated anybody in a uniform with a police officer. I got thrown in jail for dumb stuff that I shouldn't have got arrested for. You know, I, it was just like, it, it, I, just hate, I just hated the system. And so I, I didn't want to be part of the system. But I just I got to the point where I was just like, what else are you going to do? You ain't got nothing up. So I, you know, I said, screw it. And I, I ran down the street I grew up on and, and I went to the recruiter's office. And again, there's more to the story, but I ended up in the Navy recruiter's office. And, and uh, uh, she ran my background, found that I had two warrants out for my arrest. at a warrant in New Jersey and a warrant in New York. And uh, praise God, man, like this woman saw something in me that I didn't see myself because she, she literally told me to come back the next day instead of turning me into the police. And, and, and the next day, she was in her dress uniform, and, and she took me to both judges. She took me to the judge in New Jersey and the judge in New York, man, and she just advocated on my behalf for, for me in front of me, just like, please expunge this guy's record because, like, you know, I want him to get into the military. You can't get into the military with a record. Um, and both judges were like, hey, this is post-9-11. Um, if he's joining the military, we see this as an act of patriotism. Boom, both of them expunged my record. She fudged my paperwork at the MEPS. Next thing you know, I'm in the Navy. <laughs> that's that's so awesome. Uh, this uh, she was a female yeah. um, Army or I'm sorry, Navy recruiter, and she yeah. actually like walked you into the courtroom and helped you get yep. these warrants dropped. Yep, yep. And she was from the Bronx, and the reason why she did that, Tiana Reyes, 
You know, I try to say her name all the time because she ended up dying four years after that. Oh, she died yeah. of an autoimmune disease. And I dedicated, if you read the book, at the end of the book, there's this author's note that tells more of the story because she's in the book. Um, the story, what she did for me, is really in the book. Um, and, and I reference her throughout the book. And then at the end of the book, there's this author's note to her and her family because her, fam- her family has become my family, you know. Um, but, yeah, man, like, she was from the Bronx and she just knew that no one would take a chance on me. She knew that if I went to another recruiter, I was going to be blacklisted and not be able to join. And she was just like, let me give this guy a chance. I also found out from a family that that's what she did. She would drive around the Bronx in her native recruiter's car and meet up with friends who, who she used to, you know, hang with, who was selling drugs and doing bad stuff. And she would say, hey, listen, come with me. I see where your life is going. Let's get into the military. She would get people into She was like a Robin Hood in the hood. Yeah, you know patron saying? saint of the <laughs> Navy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just happened to run into the run into her. And, and yeah, that's how I got into the Navy, man. It, it was a blessing. And uh, when I got to boot camp, you know, kind of getting back to the SEAL thing, there was, there was a SEAL that came um, and he put on this presentation that happens in every boot camp division. He shows his video of what SEALs do and you know, guys jumping from planes, shooting guns, ride driving doom buggies. It was a doom buggy video. I never forget it. And um, <laughs> and, and and he and then he gave and then he said, "Who wants to be a seal?" And like when that happened, that dream that I had when I was like 15, when I watched it rock, like just bubbled up back in me. I was like, "Yo, I want to do that." Like seriously, that's what I want to do. I read that so you had to teach yourself to swim before you went. Yeah, yeah. So I got, so after boot camp, I got stationed in Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, and um, and. I, I, I was just determined. And so I, I didn't have a car and I was just, I was, well, it was just a swim thing. I didn't have the ASVAB scores. <laughs> you can't be an idiot if you're a SEAL. And I was skinny. I was literally like this skinny dude, right? I could barely do 10 push-ups. And so, um, so yeah, man, I just, I would run three miles to the pool, jump in the pool, try to figure it out <laughs> in the shallow end and run three miles back. You know, as time passed, you know, I, I began to figure it out, and 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 that's how I learned how to swim. That's you unreal. Know? It was determination. It was I wanted it. You know, I didn't have anybody standing over me saying, "Hey, what if you suit? You do this." Thing. I was like, I would go to the gym and just make up work. I was a barbarian, dude. I would just do just ridiculous stuff. People, I remember, I would run up the hill to the pool with barbell with a long barbell on my back. Like I'm, I don't, I don't know if this is gonna work or this part, but I just know I might be strong. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, man. And then within a year, checking into my command, I was, I, I was checking out, going to butts. And I, I read also that you know your first time around, you didn't make it. I mean, you had to, you had to suck yeah. it up and and go back and, and try it again. Yeah, man. So when I got the first phase of butts the first time, I had like literally failed every. I failed every swim. Like, because when I was training to, to go to butts, I didn't know that you had to swim with fins. I just thought that you had to uh-huh. do a 500 yard screening test to get into butts. And I thought that once you got to butts, then it was all like running and push ups. And if you swam, it wasn't for time. I didn't, I, you just had to finish the swim. I didn't know any of this stuff. And so when I got there and I put them fins on, <laughs> and they were like two mile time ocean swim, 85 minutes. I was like, what? <laughs> like, ocean? What? So two miles? What? And so I didn't know how to do it. So I would literally, the, the swim time was 85 minutes. I was in the pool, I was in the ocean for two hours every swim. The instructors would, would, wouldn't let me stop. They would just say, either quit or keep swimming. And it was horrible because at the end of every swim, I had no body fat. This is the Pacific Ocean. So at the end of every swim, not even at the end, like at the three, the, the, when I was about a third of the way through, hypothermia would start to set in. 
And by the end of the swim, I was either hypothermic or borderline hypothermic. And and, and so when I would check into the swim buoy, to the swim boat, to the end of of the swim, my swim buddies had to swim me to the outer surf zone because I was just done. I was smoked. I was incoherent. I was just a mess. And, And week after week, the instructors were like, this cat keeps showing up. I had it crazy. <laughs> I just kept showing up to the swim. No, I was probably going to die. Something crazy was going to happen. And, uh, and long story short, I made it through Hell Week, crushed that. And then after I make it through Hell Week, the, the, um, the, the, um, the XO and CEO was just like, okay, we see that you're determined that you want to be in your heart, dude. We're going we're gonna to performance roll you. So they performance rolled me two classes so that I can learn how to swim. And then once 253 finished Hell Week, then I classed up with them, and then I continued on with training. And then when I got to dive phase, the swim times had dropped from 85 minutes to 80 minutes, and I failed my first two swims. And then I went to pool week, which is, you know, the week where you do all these different dive tests. And once you pass that, you're pretty much almost scot-free. You just, you're more, half, more than halfway through training. And, um, and I failed this test and during pool week four times and went to ARB board. And they were like, dude, you know, we see that you have what it takes, but this water thing is just killing you. and We, we can't keep rolling you. We got a performance drop you. So they kicked me out of training, went to the fleet, and came back two years later and made it through. Started day one all over again, first phase, hell week, everything. That's hardcore, man. But, you know, I, I think, you know, I made the point once that because we get people right in and send us emails like, oh, how do you make it through selection? And I was like, look, the type of people who make it are the type of people who are like, I'm either going to graduate this course or you're going to carry me out on a stretcher. And it seems like you, yeah, were, yeah. you were in that category. <laughs> Oh, no, absolutely. Like, um, you know, I tell people all the time, like, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up, but I get the question all the time. Hey, Remy, like, why is it that that 90% of guys show up to to any selection program, not just buzz, but it's, I mean, you know the deal. It's any selection program. Why is it that 80 to 90% can only like a fraction of the guys make? I'm sorry. Why is it that, you know, all of these guys show up and only a fraction of the guys make it? And, you know, my answer is always the same. It's, you know, a lot of guys that show up to soft, programs they they have it's just it's just a good idea to them yeah that's all it is you know they have super they have a superficial reason as to why they want to do it and that superficial reason is oh i want to be i want to shoot guns i want to jump out of planes or i want to you know i want to you know hang out with cool guys or this do this but you know what when once you get in a selection and you get put in that water you get on those long <laughs> ruck humps or those long runs or you know you're getting hammered day in and day out that good idea quickly turns into a bad idea Right. And so what you have to have and what I had, you know, what you had and what other guys who go to soft will make it through have, in my opinion, is what's called the deep rooted emotional reason as to why they want to do it. And like like something and it's not oh for patriotism, oh for the no, those is to me those are still kind of superficial reasons. Now patriotism can work depends on how you're gonna use it. But for me it was I have nothing left. That was my emotional reason. It was like I have absolutely nothing left. I have failed at everything in life so far and i will not fail again so i don't care i literally have to die i almost died and still trying to actually i tell the story in my, in my book but <laughs> oh i almost died i was in the icu for like four days the first time i went through hell and, and i, I kind of glazed over that but the first time i went through hell, we almost died went to the icu for four days got out started phase first phase all day started first phase all over again day one went through first phase again made it through hell week and then ended up getting dropped and starting all over again but again my thing was this is it all or nothing. And I'm sure it's the same for you and other guys who have made it. You know, this is it. There is no, there is nothing else. Yeah. All or nothing. It's awesome. Yeah. But I mean, it paid off for you. I mean, you got your uh, trident, you went on to the teams. Yeah. Went off to the teams, had a great career, man. Um, Loved it, dude. Got to go overseas. 
kick down doors, operate, you know, do all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, that I never thought I was a humid guy. And so not only was I, you know, a door kick, I was a medic as well. So not only would I get a chance to kick down doors and do cool stuff, but I also got a chance to do like, you know, intelligence type stuff, stuff that I never thought I would be able to do, you know, stuff with, with, you know, that would, that were connected to federal agencies and government agencies, you know, and here I am, this kid from the hood, <laughs> you know what I mean, in rooms with government, you know, government officials, government agents, and they're asking me questions about sources or informants, whatever you want to call it, and I'm answering them and I'm articulating myself in a way that 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 that, that, that they can receive, you know. So, yeah, it was this dream world, man. It was this dream life for me, man. I, I just seven and a half years in the team. Well, I did thir- total of thirteen and thirteen years in wow. military. Seven and a half was in the teams, and uh, and yeah, man, I loved it. Remy, <laughs> Remy, let me let me ask you this question. I, I've asked this to um, you know people I know, African American uh, CIA officers before, uh-huh. and I, I'd, I'd like to ask you this since you said you worked in a, doing intelligence. Uh, being a black dude in the Middle East, working Afghanistan yeah. or Iraq, I don't know where you were. Like, how did yeah. that did that play in your favor? Did it play against you as far as your job and working with sources and things like that? Hundred percent in my favor. Hundred <laughs> percent in my favor. And I kind of touch on this funny brick brought that up because I do touch on that in my book. And I think you know for a few reasons. One, most of the people that I dealt with in other countries, you know, informants, I'm just going to use that term for the sake of churches keeping it clean. Um, they never saw a black guy do my job. So automatically when I would walk into a room, it was just like, Oh, this is cool. I've never seen this before. (laughs) Like all the guys I've met with before have been, you know, white bearded guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, who's this cat? Um, so, so it, you know, just the uniqueness of me stepping into the room, seeing something fresh helped me. And then another thing that helped me tremendously was the fact that I, I, I felt like I could really identify with a lot of the, a lot of the informants that I work with. And what I mean by that is I grew up in the inner city, you know, I grew yeah. up in the streets, you know what I'm saying? And when you grow up in the, like places like the Bronx, Compton, South side of Chicago, all of these places, there is a level of street knowledge that you gain that you can't gain anywhere else, right? And so just being having the background that I had, it really helped me to really read people the way I had to read people. It really helped me to tell whether somebody was telling the truth, whether somebody wasn't, like all of these different things. And another thing it made me do, especially as a black man, like, you know, there were a lot of things that I dealt with, you know, that, you know, especially in the education system, which I also touch on in the book, you know, just not receiving what, what I should have received, what should have received from an educational standpoint, because it's the inner city or having certain things held back from me because I grew up in the inner city. You know what I mean? And so when I was dealing with a lot of these people, they had all of these conflicts that they were dealing with for the most part. So I, and I don't know if this makes sense. I felt like I can identify. Sure. With no, absolutely. But that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So it was that, it was that common ground. Like, I'm an African-American in America. I grew up in this inner city, in this environment. You are in this very hostile environment in this country, whatever country. I won't say the countries I've been in, but you were in this very hostile environment. You, are, you live in this very hostile environment. And because I come from a hostile environment, you too, I can identify with you. Yeah, I mean, people, I I pe- people uh, Iraqi people in Mosul or Ramadi or, or Fallujah, wherever, I mean, they are on the streets hustling in a way that, you know, I, for sure myself could not understand. I mean, I've never lived that yeah. kind of life. No, absolutely. And so that, that I mean, that helped me tremendously. And another thing that helped me <laughs> big time that I, that I found out, you know, and especially in the countries that I worked in was how a lot of the, a lot of, like Middle Easterners, 
and specifically in the countries I've worked in, they know all about like the black arts. Yes. <laughs> what yes. I mean by that is they know about Eddie Murphy. They know about like uh, uh, Martin Lawrence. They know they watch <laughs> like they watch these TV shows over there or DVDs. Like they, they like, like I remember I was doing meetings. They was Eddie Murphy. And and the cool thing about it was I learned how to use that. Mm-hmm. I learned how to, you know, use that in a way to connect with them. I was like, oh, these guys like Eddie Murphy. They watch, they watch these TV shows, Martin Lawrence and stuff like that. I'm going to act like that to really feel more common ground. <laughs> and I would literally act like a, a black comedian sometimes. And I would, and they couldn't understand anything I was saying. And just like they couldn't understand a lot of what they watched, but you know they, they're watching it with Arabic subtitles, right? So they were watching, they would just laugh, laugh. So I would come in the room, and I'm just like, "Yo, what's up?" <laughs> Cracking up, dude. They just be laughing, and I would go on with this thing for a while. Some party would look at it and be like, "Man, that's dumb. That's stupid. Why are you doing that?" But in reality, dude, it softened them so much mm-hmm. that by the time it was time to talk business, they were just like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk. What's up? What's up?" Because I had built this this relationship through this common ground, you know? It's so awesome. I, uh, we had a, uh, an interpreter with us who was uh, an American citizen, but he was from Sudan. And, uh, I, I, I initially I was like, man, how's this going to play out? Like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not like culturally unaware. This was in Iraq. Uh, but actually they loved him. They thought he was amazing. Like Mm -hmm. he he was this black dude with dreadlocks. Like they were fascinated by him. They thought (laughs) he was great. And they they called him, uh, his name was Corey. They call him Corey Jabori. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They loved him. Yeah. What do you think the, what do you think, um, not just the seal teams, but what do you think the special operations community can do a little bit better as far as, uh, you know, appealing to African Americans or other minority groups to get in, uh, you know, get these folks into our ranks. I think it's a few things. I think one, I think it starts with education. And I think it starts with education, not at high, just at the senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. I think it starts at, you know, educate, expose. And when I say education, I also mean exposure. Um, at, at, at an elementary school level, like, you know, help kids in the industry, allow kids in the industry to know that this exists. Like, have maybe, you know, when I was, when I, I did like a, I think it was like six months, not even six months, like three months. Um, helping out with the recruiting department, uh, the NSW recruiting department. And notice is we would always go to suburban areas. Mm-hmm. We would go to the beach. We would, we would do these big events at like Huntington Beach on the beach with all of these lifeguards, right? All of these like these lifeguard trainees, these kids who want to be lifeguards. They're like 13, 14, 11 years old, and they're training to swim and stuff like that. And the reason why they were targeted was because of their swimming background. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome, but what about going to the hood? What about going to, like, you know, these other areas and exposing these kids? Yeah, they may not have a swimming background, but what if we, what if we bring them to a pool? You know, so I think stuff like that. I also think um, um, education as far as – I blame it on the schools, too. You know, and the reason why I say that is because I go to – anytime I, I get invited to schools all the time to speak. But 95% of the schools I get invited to come speak at are suburban schools, right? As far as inner-city schools, it is extremely hard for me to get into an inner-city school. Why, why is that? I don't know. I, it, literally, I was in the Bronx last week. Uh, two, was it like, yeah, last week. Schools wouldn't let me come in. My high school wouldn't let me come in. <laughs> like, the, like the news came and did a story on me, and we had to stay outside of the high school. They wouldn't allow us in. You can't come in. And that's not the first time that it happened. I went to D. I went to D. Wood Clinton High School two years ago after I did Transformers. 
you know, I was like, hey, you know, Paramount was trying to set up a thing for me to go speak to all the students to share my story and share how they could ride. Nope, you can't come into the school. And I find that with so many inner city schools, there are these restrictions that keep people from coming in. Now, whose fault that is? I don't know, but that needs to change. So, you know, I don't know if it's the fault of, of, of the board or whoever, but if, again, if kids are not being exposed to it, they, and they won't know about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, and then, you know, another thing, another fix is, again, I keep going back to education, but education in general. I have a buddy of mine, he's a recruiter in Philadelphia in the hood, and he calls me up and he tells me, Remy, like, I can't get none of these kids in the Navy or the Army. I say, why? He said, because none of them can pass the ASVAC test. None of them can pass the basic ASVAC test. And I go to the school and I see what they're learning and how they're being taught and the books they have and the resources are lacking. Mm. Like, that's why they can't read at a senior high school level. And so the education system really needs to be ramped up, revamped across the country within inner cities. And so, so because if you can't, if you, if you could just pass the ASVAT test, that's not enough to go soft. You know that in order to go soft, you got to have really high ASVAT scores. So, so yeah, man, I, I, don't know, I think that that's that thing. And then what I did, you know, one of the reasons why I write a book, wrote the book, this is one of the main reasons why I wrote the book was, you know, a lot of a lot of white seals have written books, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and no drama, no sweat on my back. And I know that there's 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 beef with dudes who write books, and 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 that's why for a long time I didn't want to write a book. Like it took years for me to finally come to terms with what writing a book, and I just knew that if I wrote a book, it wasn't going to be strict. It wasn't going to be a Navy SEAL book in the essence of what a Navy SEAL book is. Not knocking any Navy SEAL book. It's going to be a journey book, and it's going to be a book where a kid from the inner city can pick up, read, and be like, wow, like this dude came from where I came from, and he became a SEAL. I could become one, too. And that kind of goes to the exposure thing. I wanted to expose kids to who come from my world to my new world so that they could see it and have hope that they can do it, if that makes sense. That's awesome. Yeah, and what, what you're saying, I mean, we've touched on it before. It definitely is an issue in the special operations community of it looking like mm-hmm. a monolith, you know, at least just visually. People you know. think, it, think it is, yeah. But, I mean, Dennis and I were yeah. looking at Remy's pics from the Navy before uh, we started this, and I think it's a, a picture of your buds class, and it is literally all white faces <laughs> and then you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the way it is every class. I mean, well, well let me rephrase that. That's the way it is. Some classes, most classes, it's all white. Yeah. Like, like literally, you probably get maybe one, if you're lucky, two black graduates a year. And we're talking five graduating classes a year. I think another I part mean, of it might be, um, you know, you're, you're a New Yorker, so you know about this. There's been a... Uh, history of more white firefighters and i've read i've read articles yeah. about that and it has to do with like the legacy thing of this guy's father is a firefighter and his yeah. father is a firefighter and they learn about it you know earlier on we've had guys on the show before like frumentarius who's a navy seal his father was a navy he's, seal. he's a third generation seal, yeah, his, I think. his grandfather yeah. was a navy seal and and you know that holding on to that legacy thing it's it's hard to you know get into new communities and get new faces in in the program and as you said like there's certain things that are advantageous to not looking like everybody else. Yeah, Matt, let me ask you a question. When you say that, do you mean like that is you put the burden on the community or you put the like I just want to I just want to clarify because I could uh, 
tackle that tackle that. So you're saying that the legacy thing is because it's the father who teaches the son, and that's why the son becomes a seal, or is it because are you saying that because the father was a seal, he's able to you know do some work within the seal teams to make sure his son gets into the seal team? I would say because from, from the firefighter standpoint, I would say that makes sense from a firefighter standpoint. Oh, like. My dad was a firefighter. Hey, man, you know, go speak to so-and-so. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Work this department to get me in. Like, yeah, no, I can see I, that in a firefighter department, but a team, I think it's different. That's, yeah, because I, it, it I would think it's a combination of both, but, you you know, I'm the guy here who hasn't served, so I wouldn't know about that thing, but you, you even think of, like, legacy political families. Why are there so many Kennedys in government and Clintons? You yeah. know, because people can yeah. pull some strings. Yeah. I'm guessing what you're saying is with the SEALs, it's not exactly like Well, I mean, like yeah, that. they still have to pass buds regardless, but, yeah. you know, it's more yeah. like, you know, you're, you have... Like, like, like you were saying, Remy, like there's that educational process because they know all about yeah. the SEALs because their dad yeah. was in the Navy. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's why I was getting it. Like, like I, I agree with you. It's an education thing, more so for a legacy. But as far as this, when you go to Bud, it don't matter who you are. I've seen dudes in Bud whose dads were, were, were SEALs and they got dropped as fast as the performance. I say performance drop and not performing. You know what I mean? So, and that's why I. I you know, people asked, I had a question last night, man. Hey, dude, are the SEAL teams racist, dude? Like, do they do they treat, like, black dudes different, like, or anything like that? And honestly, man, like, I'll just speak, I can speak from experience because I've been there and I've done that. I don't think so in any way, you know, because the way I, the way the teams have been, from my experience, is I don't care whether you're white, black, whatever. Can you do your job? Like, can you do your job? Like, can you operate? You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's what I had experienced throughout my entire career. First, when you get the buds, can you make it? I don't care if you're black, white, Spanish, whatever. Can you hold your weight on your log? And that's the way I was, dude. I, dude, I kicked a bunch of. I was a savage in buds. I was. I would make guys quit. Like instructors would make guys quit. You know what I mean? Because I wanted you to perform. It's either you could perform or you could not. And that's one thing I always loved about the SEAL team. At the end of the day, that's what it boils down to: can you perform and can you not perform? That's it. So post-military career, you got into acting and got a smaller role in the Transformers movie, and now you have another yeah. role in a, in a future Michael Bay movie. I want to hear about yeah. how that all happened. <laughs> yeah. So, like, literally, I was minding my own business, dude. I wasn't trying to, like, get into acting. People ask me all the time, how'd you get in? I was like, I didn't try and get into acting. Act. kind of came knocking on my door. I was in grad school writing papers, um, um, and I, my phone rang. Literally, and this woman was on the line, and she was just like, "Hey, I work with Michael Bay. Like, he's looking for somebody with your background, who's a former SEAL, African American, to do like, you know, a day on set. You know, we we we, we want to make sure that it's a diverse set." And I was like, "Yeah, cool." And uh, she said, "Send her pictures." I send her pictures. The next day, I'm on set, and that was just supposed to be one day. But then she hits me up two weeks later. Hey, Bay likes your direction. He likes the way you could take direction. Can you come back for three weeks? I said, "Sure." Then I got bumped to a principal role, and then I stayed on until the film wrapped. And then that's how I got into it. Like literally, I, I was not trying to be an actor, and then that's what opened up the doors for other stuff. Not just base second second film I just finished with Bay, but I've done a bunch of TV work, commercial work. Signed an endorsement deal with Jockey, and and it all came from that one opportunity. That's super cool. I mean, is is that something you? Uh, I, I take it you intend to pursue and continue to, uh, an acting career. You know, I'm not. I, I want to say pursue. No, uh, I'm a writer. You know, my thing okay. is I'm a writer. Um, I was actually uh, uh, I wrote my book by myself. I didn't have a ghostwriter. I didn't have a co-writer. I sat and put pen and paper because I have a background in writing. 
and uh, and then that that kind of gave me the confidence to write films. So I actually was at a meeting uh, yesterday with a major studio here in Hollywood. They're interested in in, in some in a film that I wrote, and so so I'm a writer. Uh, if somebody comes knocking on my door and says, "Hey, we want to pay you X amount of dollars to act in a film," I'm not going to say no. <laughs> 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 so, but uh, but my thing is, I, I like the I, I like the concept of creating content. You know, I like creating. I love telling stories. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm really pursuing now, you know, writing films, producing films. Um, I might sign this deal with this big studio and where I'll be able to just produce and work under their banner. Everything goes well. And, uh, and so, yeah, man, that's, that's, that's where I'm at here. This is awesome, Remy. Let me let me just ask you. You were the 15 year old kid uh, infatuated mm-hmm. with the Navy SEALs, and uh-huh. you know you went on and you became one. Served there for what did you say, like 13 years, 15 years? 13 years in the Thirteen, Navy. Yeah. 13 years in the Navy. Mm-hmm. What was it? Everything you hoped for? Absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, it was. It was. I mean, for me, it was. For That's me, awesome. It was. Um, it was everything, man. It, and and you know it, it's. It helped me become a man, dude, you mm-hmm. know, so because especially not having a father, um, yeah. you know, and, and trying to figure out what it means to be a man and uh, trying to figure out like integrity and, you know, all these principles that you get in the Navy and then you <laughs> you get even more in the SEAL teams, you know, it, it was everything and more, dude, like uh, the That's best so job cool. that I've had, you know, it set me up for my future. It helped me get my education, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you said you were writing papers in grad school. Are you getting your degree? I finished. So I finished. I got okay. my master's back in. Uh, I want to say 2017. I graduated. Got right my on. master's in organizational strategy. You're a badass dude, Remy. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say. <laughs> uh, man, I just, I, you know, I, my thing is, dude. When I leave this world, I want to know that I've exhausted every part of this freaking shell called my body. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's just how I try to live my life. You know what I mean? Every day is a blessing and. You know, I just, I just want to, I just want to push it to the max and see what I could do and be open to, to, to other opportunities. You know, other unexpected opportunities. I never want to look back on my life and say, dude, you, did, you didn't take that day and yeah. crush it. You didn't take that day and give it absolutely everything. You know, my thing, and this is something I get from being a soft man, is, is excellence. You know, you know, there, there's a standard and where you could just check the box and go about your business. Um, or there's excellence where you can push past the standard to really, you know, accomplish your goal, your dream. And my thing is every day I'm trying to smash the standard and, and, and just strive for excellence. Well said, man. Uh, the book is once again transformed the Navy SEALs unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx, defying all odds. Pick it up. It's getting high praise from not only friends of the show like Scott McEwen, but I saw Kathy Lee Gifford, and that's a pretty big yeah. endorsement there, like a legend yeah. in the broadcasting world. Um, yeah, I wanted yeah. to ask you something completely off topic of your book, just because it's in the news. Yeah. Anytime we've had a Navy SEAL on, I like to at least get their opinion because it's in their wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you probably saw over the weekend, Trump is hinting at a possible pardon of not only several people accused of war crimes, uh, but mm-hmm. Chief Eddie Gallagher, I just wanted to hear your take, whatever it is, on that whole situation. Uh, you know, I, what I, here's how I'll frame it. You know, I'm not going to give my opinion on it. I'm just going to say here's how I'll, uh, here's, here's what I'll say. First things first, you know what I mean? I'm a human before I'm absolutely anything. You know what I mean? And um, I was in buzz with Eddie. You know what I'm saying? So I got mad love for Eddie. Mm-hmm. I got mad love for Eddie. I got love for his family. 
You know what I mean? Like, I know he's a SEAL, I'm a SEAL. You know what I'm saying? What I will say is that if what he did is true, and I don't know, so I'm not saying I know, you know what I mean? My thing is you can't just do crazy stuff. You know what I'm saying? That's my thing. There are consequences for actions. If what he said, if what, if what, if the allegations against him are true. And I don't care. And, and, and you know, I'm going to be straight. I'm a, I'm a New York cat. I'm a straight cat. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to mix words. You know what I'm saying? You know, and, and people can come after me and say whatever they want to say. But I'm just saying, when you look at the reality of it, if you're doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing, you need to reap the consequences for it. Now, I don't know if it's true because I wasn't there. And then there's another piece to the whole thing, and the whole the, the other piece to the whole thing is, and, and you know, I'm, I'm saying I hope it's not true. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and so and another piece of this thing is there are other seals. Is is what they saying a lie? You know what I mean? I think that this is a very complex situation, because um, you got seals saying he did X, Y, and Z. You know what I mean? And then you got his side of him saying he didn't do X, Y, and Z. So I'm not, I'm not siding with anybody. But what I am saying is if that's true, you pay the man. If it's not true, then those who are bringing them ac- the accusations against him, they need to pay the man. And my thing is, if it's not true, you don't, wh- what do you need a pardon for? You know what I'm saying? You didn't do anything wrong. And, and, and so my thing is, if you didn't do anything wrong, go fight the case. You know what I mean? Go fight the case. And so that's my thing. Again, I'm not looking at it. And it, you know, I'm not political at all, period. I'm an independent. I don't, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. And I'm, and I'm not for a reason because I don't like to be. I, I, that's just over the years. I, 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 you know, I had political affiliations over the years, you know. Years ago, Democrat, Republican, bouncing back and forth. But I'm an independent. I chose that because I, I like to look at the overall situation and then make a determination based off of the overall situation. I don't like to be, well, this side says this, so this means this, or this side says that, so this means that. I like to look at the whole of the thing. You know what I mean? And so the whole of this thing that I'm looking at is it is what it is. If it, 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 I don't care who you are. If you do something wrong, you got you got to pay the man for it. If you didn't do something wrong and you're getting accused of doing something wrong, then, then you, if the person who's accusing you, you need to pay the man for it. You know what I'm saying? Because at the end of the day, a human is a human. You know what I mean? You can't just you just can't go around doing crazy stuff. You know what I mean? But I hope it's not true. I, you know, I, like I said, I've been out of the I've been out of the community for a long period of time. So you know, I don't I I don't know. I didn't read the intel reports. I haven't been there. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening on the ground, ground, ground level. But you know, yeah. No, at the th- end of the day, everybody needs to do the right thing. Period. No, thanks for laying that on us, Remy. And you know, for what it's worth, I, I tend to agree with you. And you know, I, I hope the the truth and the facts of the case come out. And you know, hope, yeah. hopefully, it is all false. Hopefully, it is all nonsense. I I, I don't want to believe this is true about you know yeah. a uh, a seal or any American troop. You know. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and again, I just hate when people are like, well, because you need to say this, 
because of where you come from or, or because of your affiliation. Like, you have to say this. You have to say, yo, screw these people for whatever. They shouldn't be supporting this person. They, they should be supporting this person, blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm not, I, you know, that's, that's not my thing. So, you know what I mean? I know cats might be hot at me for saying what I'm saying, but at the end of the day, you know what I mean? You got to look at the situation as a whole, take a step back and, and say, you know, let's look at the facts and take it from there. And again, I, I'll reiterate, I'll reiterate, like, I'm going to tell, tell you what I would do. I'm not even going to speak on his situation because I get it. I've got, like, in the book, straight up, I'm calm. people ask me all the time, Remy, you not scared you're going to go to federal prison for the stuff you did back in the day that you talk about in your book? And what I say to them is I, put, I, I knew that I, can get, I could potentially get in trouble for the stuff I did. You know what I mean? Like, I know that. The potential is there, but I made a conscious decision to do it because I wanted the title of the book is transformed and I wanted people to see the rawness of who I was so they could see that, yeah, I made mistakes, but I still have potential. And not only did I make mistakes, I fessed up to my mistakes. And I'm telling you, this is what I did. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so if something, if somebody comes after me for anything, I'm going to be like, yeah, I did it. I told you I did it. And if somebody says, hey, man, we're going to give you a pardon, like, let's go do the case. You know, like, like and again, I, I don't understand the whole pardon thing. So the way I'm interpreting it is the pardon is, is, is essentially saying that we're going to just drop the whole case together. Is that the case? Is that, is that the way it works? If he got a presidential pardon, I, I believe, yeah. Would, yeah, prior to so going the, to trial. Yeah. Okay, so this private one just today they're saying that the case is not even. This is not okay. He's been right. Haven't been following. Right. Um, before, it's not whole. He's been prosecuted, and now after he's been prosecuted, now he's going to be um, pardoned. This, this is not that right. This is he's not even finished the case yet. They're just shutting the case down and saying go free. Right. Yeah, I I believe so because a fellow seal Dan Crenshaw made the statement today that he thinks this needs to go to trial prior to having any pardon. And that's what I'm saying. That's where I'm at. If you if, if you innocent, go do the case, man. Go do the case. Don't do the part of thing. Go do the case. Yeah, exonerate yourself. Exonerate yourself. Like I said, and the reason why I referenced my book is because I laid it out. You know what I'm saying? Like I, this is what I did. I'm I fessed up to it. I did it. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. Looking back, it was dumb. It was stupid. I should have never did it. You know what I'm saying? It, it made me who I am today. But I'm taking responsibility now. If I didn't do it, like if I didn't do that stuff, I'm like, let's go to court. <laughs> Let's go to court. I didn't do it. Let the evidence prove me wrong. Prove me prove, prove me right or wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think we're, we're in the same camp as you, and I'm, I was interested in hearing your take because just talking to SEALs on the show, everyone from Jake's wig to Kristen back to Rob O'Neill, they I, actually the three of them were pretty much in support of him no matter what I would say. I mean, you go listen back to the interviews, and that was kind of their take, but then I hear the take of you the take of Dan Crenshaw and I think it echoes what we what we said that you'll hear at the intro of the show that we need the facts to come out before there's a pardon I, yeah. I would tend to agree with you yeah listen I, and and you know like I, I, I want to be careful how we use the word support I support the cat yeah you know no, what I I'm saying you. yeah you know what I'm saying I, I'm not like yo screw him see and and this is we talk I'm gonna talk about brotherhood you know what I mean cuz people throw that thing around all the time brotherhood 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 and I'm not and I'm not associating this to Eddie at all I'm associating this to, to period period if you really my brother and I really care about you 
if you're doing something wrong, I'm going to pull your coat because I care about you. I'm going to try and deal with it. If I'm not your brother, I'm going to just let it keep riding and let it escalate and get worse and get worse. So when we talk about support, you can't sit. And again, I'm not associating this to Eddie. So I don't want people to say support goes two ways, man. Support is, yo, you did the wrong thing. I'm going to say you did the wrong thing, but I'm still here with you. How can we get through this together? I'm still visiting you. Let me break this down anymore. Dude who I used to hustle with, sell drugs with, he's sitting in prison right now. I should be in prison with him because I was doing stuff with him. I love him. I support him. I call him. I put money on his books. I talk to him. I'm trying to set him up when he get out of prison. But that doesn't mean I'm going to say, yo, bro, you didn't do it when it's clear that you did it. He did it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he did it. He knows he did the video cameras of him doing what he did that got him in prison. So for me to try and talk to him on the phone and be like, yo, man, like, you didn't really do it. How can we do it? I can't believe they're doing this to you. Blah, 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 blah. This is jacked up. I'm making this cat delusional. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because now he's sitting there like, man, yeah, like, I, I probably didn't do it. Why are they doing this to me? This is jacked up. This is Randy's even saying that, you know, I'm, I'm innocent. This and that and that and this. You know, I, I need to I need to fight. I need to do this. I need to do that. When the reality is videotape, dude, of what you did. So me supporting you ain't me saying you didn't do it. You know what I mean? Like 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 we boys. So because we boys, I'm gonna be on your side and say we didn't. You didn't do it. No, me supporting you is like, yeah, I'm here for you, bro. You know what you did. The court knows what you did. The jury knows what you did. The video camera knows what you did. And it sucks that you're sitting in a box, but what you need? Yeah. When you call me, I'm going to take your phone call. When your, kids need, when your kids need food, when your kids need money, or when their kids need help out with something, I'm sending them money. I'm taking care of them. I'm taking care of what needs to be taken. I'm sending you books. I'm here when you get out. So I can help you get on your feet. That's support. That's brotherhood. Cats be twisting up, and, and, and cats be twisting up this whole brotherhood thing. And you know what? It's the same kind of stuff that happens in the streets. People talk all that, bro. Yo, come here, kids on the corner selling drugs, and another cast like, yo, the kid who's selling drugs tells another kid, yo, be my lookout. Be my lookout. We brothers. Be my lookout. You know what I mean? And then the lookout ends up sitting in a box. Because the, the lookout gets caught or something happens, and now the dude's like, but, it, it, I don't know, man. But again, main point, I know I might not be making sense. I'm going on a tangent, but again, brotherhood, is, is it goes two ways, man. No, I it's hear. not just. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a, there's a point where if we're not careful, a brotherhood becomes like a mafia or something like that. And yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that's maybe. And again, yeah, that would that, be a great way of putting it. Yeah. That'd be a great way to put it. And, and, you know, another person, another thing, too, for me, man, I'm a person of faith, man. I'm a Christian man. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a person of faith. You know what I mean? And and going back to the whole human piece, you know what I mean? It's like you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow, man. And, you know, you, 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 I'm, not, I'm not associating this to anybody. I'm not associating this to anybody. It's just, it's just a reality. You know what I mean? And You know what I mean? Like, even if, if you do something wrong, there's, you're going to pay them, you're going to pay the man for it. You know, the Lord is always watching. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't, 
I don't. I, I'll be blunt, blunt and blatant right here. I don't. I think that Trump let the case ride. Let it go to court. The man is innocent, which I hope he's innocent. Again, that support. I hope he's innocent. Then let the court deal with it. If the man is guilty, and all the evidence points to the man is guilty, wrong is wrong. I don't care if you wear trident. I don't care if you wear jump wings. I don't care who you are. And that's something that pisses me off about this case, man. Like you, just because you wear a bird, don't make you freaking Superman, where you could do whatever you want to do. So I hope the man is innocent. I hope for himself. I hope for his family. He got a wife and kids. You know what I'm saying? He got he he, he got responsibility for the people overseas. I hope for the Trident, for the for the community, for the SEAL teams, everything. I hope the man is innocent. But if he ain't, yeah. No, I, I think you're you're right on. Uh, last thing I wanted to bring up before we wrap this up, and this has been a great interview. Uh, you also have your own nonprofit, City Hope Now, cityhopenow.org. Do you just want to tell the people uh, what you're doing with that? Yeah, man. So City Hope is uh, City Hope Now dot org is you know we it's just a way to get back. You know, um, I grew up in the inner city. I grew up without a father, and so I have. You know, I live in Southern California, and they're inner cities in Southern California. And so what we do is three things. We deal with human trafficking. Um, we deal with um, domestic violence um, uh, victims. We put them in apartments if their husbands are, or boyfriends or whoever are abusing them, and they need to get away because they feel like their life is threatened. We put them in apartments so that they can have a place to stay for a few days um, or until they can get themselves on their feet. It could be more than a few days. And then another thing we do is we do mentorship. So I have kids who are literally like my kids, you know, not like, <laughs> you know, blood, but I spend time with them. I go to their schools when they get in trouble. I talk to the teachers. I tell the teachers, give them another chance. I sit them down. I can't spank them, so I don't spank them. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I, I just try to be a father figure to them. I try to guide them down the right path so they don't make the same decisions that I make. You know what I mean, and uh, and we also help out with food drives. You know, during the during the um, breaks, you know, some of these kids they don't have they don't have uh, they don't have food for lunch. You know, so what we try to do is we try to provide food for them that can last for if they don't break for two weeks a week, so that they have food for lunch um, as well. So there's a lot of things we do. Uh, I do talks and with them and. Um, yeah, we also provide financially for them in situations if they need, like, like if the kids want to go to college but they can't afford, you know, their their, their college application fees or you know stuff like that. We come alongside them, help them. So it's just essentially being to them what I wish I had when I was their age. Remy, that makes sense. No, that's it's awesome. And uh, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And uh, yeah. I, I hope that people go out and, you know, read your book and, and uh, yeah. listen to this it was just, it's an awesome story. And I really appreciate you coming on here and uh, laying some real talk on us today. No, I appreciate it. I'm sorry if I went on that. Tangent. No, no, not at all. You know, what I mean? you know, if it doesn't make sense, you know what I mean? I just, sometimes when I'm passionate about stuff or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get things out of, it could, it could not. It no, man. No, not at all. Not at all. I, yeah, I think what you said did make sense. And also, to be honest, some of the people I've had on don't really want to expand on this issue too much. They just want to say, I support Eddie. 
Yeah, you know, and and they would agree with the, what support, the president again, is doing. I no, and I I get that. I just you know when I saw, for example, Pete Hegseth tweeting out, and we talked about it earlier in the show before we brought you on, just saying that Trump is a true warfighter's president to just throw out a pardon. I, I don't know. I think there needs to be people who expand on that a little bit more, as you did. Um, the book, once again, is Transformers. The uh, Sorry. The book, once again, is Transformed, a Navy <laughs> SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx, defying all odds. Uh, Remy is at Remy Adeleke on Twitter and Instagram, which is at R-E-M-I-A-D-E-L-E-K-E. Once again, cityhopenow.org. Check it out, and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That went really well, uh, and, and I was actually glad that he expanded upon uh, his feelings on that because I, I like to get other guys' takes, and I was t- totally unaware that he was in buds with Eddie Gallagher yeah. and that he knew the guy. Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, I think he laid on a lot of real talk, and I think that uh, he's right. I mean, there has to be like some self reflection. We have to look in the mirror, you know, ask ourselves about what's right and what's wrong. And, and I, I agree with him. You know, hope, hopefully Eddie Gallagher turns out to be innocent. Like that would make that would make my day because I'm I, like I've worked on a lot of these stories about bad things in the military, and uh, it gets to you after a while. Sure, it's, it's depressing. And if he was innocent, people are going to go see Jack, even though that's not at all what you've been saying. Well, but- the other thing too, I just wanted to mention because the first half of this podcast, when we talked about the the case and we talked about Ashley Massaro, uh, there's like some really dark stuff with the yeah. military, right? But you have to contrast that with Remy's story Absolutely. and everything Remy was telling us about, you know, this incredible journey, this transformation he had, and that the military provided him with this amazing opportunity. And he went on and did all these great things for our country. So Gave him a total second chance at life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, like, I, I, I'm saying this almost on a personal level for myself because I end up dealing with some of these really dark subjects, um, things that, that happened in the military that shouldn't have happened. Like, you always have to take that and then – Remember all of the amazing people that you've met throughout the years in the military. And, you know, the Army or the the military in general is a huge institution. Um, There are tons and tons of people in there. Some of them are bad people. And and you have to say what it it is, what it is. But a lot of them are great people. Yeah. So we have to keep we have to keep all this in mind. I would agree. There was one other thing I wanted to say about this case that I forgot to bring up uh, at the beginning because you tweeted out. Uh, what Dan Crenshaw said, and I was looking at some of the responses. And one of, one of the guys said something that I've heard other people say, and I just wanted to refute it. I don't remember who it was on Twitter, but they said, my problem is that the media is calling this man a war criminal before it goes to trial. Now, I don't know about you. I have not seen any article call him Eddie Gallagher war criminal. They will say he's accused of war crimes, and they, they're purposely... Even, even if they are a slanted news outlet, they're not going to say that because they know that if he goes to trial and he's innocent, they could be sued for a lot of money. Oh, yeah. No, oh, yeah. No. It's, uh, it's slanderous. Yeah. Or, or no valid libel, media I should source. Say. Yeah. No valid media source is going to put their credibility on the line and call him war criminal. Even, you know, when they and mention O.J. Simpson, they, they say that he was on trial for murder. Yeah. He was found innocent. Oh, it would be in, inappropriate and irresponsible to say that. Um if not illegal. Yeah. So 
I don't know where this guy is getting it. Yeah, there's, I'm sure there's people on Twitter calling him a war criminal. There's people on Twitter who say lots of things, but no. Well, when news people outlet. say when people say the media, I mean, what does that mean? Yeah, you, you now remember, we, nowadays we are the media because you, you could film something, put it on Twitter. Well, you, you remember when we had Carmen on, and and Carmen was just laughing. He's like, yeah. when people say the media, like, what the hell are they talking about? The media is like Seinfeld reruns. Yes. Like that's the media. <laughs> I was going to mention that same one thing because I think that is what he said. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, and I guess you are a member of the media now if you go out and you catch something on film and you put it on Twitter, yeah. it becomes news. Um, but there's no major news outlet. I'd like to see it, if so, flat out calling him a war criminal. I have not seen that, and I highly doubt it's anywhere because every news outlet needs to cover their ass, and they, they are not going to put their credibility on the line and also put their money on the line getting sued by putting a false accusation out there. This could very likely go to trial, and he could be found completely innocent. So... Um, we'll see. Great interview. I think we had a discussion on some major things. Uh, as always, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. All tier crates are available at CrateClub.us. And right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all software radio listeners. That's the biggest discount we've ever made available. And we don't know how long we can keep that promotion live. So get on it right now. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off your subscription. For all crates, I know last week I said we just had the Dash 1 crate. It looks like the premium crate is back up on there. So CrateClub.us, sign up today. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already on board, sign up at thenewsrep.com. You've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here. Jack Murphy, uh, Stavros, all those guys, the many guest writers who pop in as well. Unlimited access to the news rep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. Invitations to our exclusive events. And it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SOFRAP radio app where you can download for free. Uh, on iPhone and Android. Our homepage, as always, is softrepradio.com. And on the app, on the website, you can hear the full archive of shows. Some of those are no longer on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Um, as always, keep up with us at Softrep Radio as well. And, yeah, with that, man, this is my last week of shows. One more show left. If you want to keep up with what I'm doing post here, uh, you can always follow me on Twitter at Ian Scotto. Call one nine hundred Ian. Can I uh, can I plug no, one thing? Never, I, I, I have a, I have a final thought. A final thought yeah. uh, on a totally other subject. So, uh, if you go on thenewsrep.com right now, you will find my full article about Special Forces Detachment A. It's like a three thousand three hundred word article 
about the special forces soldiers who were stationed in Berlin during the Cold War. And their primary mission was sabotage in the event that the Soviet Union ever invaded. They would activate. We interviewed a member on this podcast, Bob Charest. If you go yeah. back in time, he was on here. and he it was, was a while ago, right? A while ago. Um, I interviewed at least two dozen members of Detachment A for in the, in the course of writing that article. There's a ton of information in there, like stuff that will boggle your mind. It's awesome. Um, and I, uh, I bring it up because I previously published the redacted version of the article. Um, I had submitted it to um, DOD Security Review at the request of the members, I, the, the former members of Dead A that I interviewed. Did that. Um, they sat on it for months, and I threatened to publish it anyway, and they finally got back to me with their redactions, and I was shocked because they took a hacksaw to it. They, they cut it like half of it was redacted. So I published just the redacted version of the article, threw it up there. Um, in the meantime, I worked with a lawyer and I filed an appeal to DOD. And they sat on that thing for about two years. And they just got back to us last month. And they said, well, you previously published this article, or the redacted or the, you know, the redacted form of the article. So um, there's no point for us to review your article. So we're, we're dropping the appeal after two years. So I was like, well, okay. They said it would serve no further purpose to review your article. So it's like, all right. So I published the full article nice. and that's up there now. It's like, it's a very long article. I think, um, I think the, the unit itself deserves the recognition for what they did. Um, they also got involved in counterterrorism. So they were involved in operation Eagle claw, which we've talked to mm-hmm. Mike Vining and Mike Lampy about and all. I mean, it's just an incredible story. So please go check that out long time in the making <laughs> right on man all right well uh as always leave us a review on apple podcast check out that article and we're out you've been listening to soft rep radio new episodes up every wednesday and friday follow the show on instagram and twitter at soft rep radio